journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Oh, how nice it is to listen to music again. I thoroughly enjoyed the Upper Feet piece uh, that we just listened to. This is 101.95 FM. I am Adel Kowalski. And we are over the hump of the three weeks with Tishabi out behind us. Six weeks and counting, ladies, especially. Um, to Rosh Hashanah, I hope you've got all your uh, recipes done and all your lists done and your guest list. Don't disappoint. Don't disappoint. Um, but while you are running around the shops and starting to now, you know, put your focus on the upcoming high holidays in six weeks' time, I'm here to teach you Torah and to be with you for the next three quarters of an hour where we are exploring uh, the, the ten plagues. And as I said last week, we are going to be taking this really slow and going through the ten plagues one by one so that we can really, really understand and digest much more what what the plagues really did to the Egyptians, why they were there, what was the divine justice behind it, and most importantly, what it is that we can learn from the plagues. As explained, um, we know that, uh, that Egypt is something that we take uh, very seriously in our lives because the Torah has joined us that uh, we need to see ourselves as if we are, are slaves. We are slaves to our physical, spiritual, emotional, mental Egypt, our constraints. And every single day a Jew is enjoined to take a step and find true freedom. And true freedom doesn't come from having another yacht or a fancy house or another pair of shoes. True freedom comes from the inside, from being psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually awake to the realities of this world and living the world on a higher basis. And that's why we're here today together to learn. But we're first going to learn about all that happened in Egypt, and I am primarily basing all my comments from the Midrash. The Midrash is that part of Torah that gives the Agadic, the, 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 the side of Torah with all the stories that we actually regale our youngsters at school with, um, now we are going to learn it ourselves. If you have any questions or comments, 34519 is our SMS line, 0618951019, our telegram number. So where are we holding? We're in the book of Exodus, and we are going to be looking at chapter 7, verse 26. Okay, just for a timeline, we have finished up the plague of blood, pretty devastating. Um, it in and of itself could have just should have should have been enough to convince good old Pharaoh to let our people go. But as we know, Pharaoh is a, um, a very stubborn human being, always trying to look and find ways and reasons to explain this world, primarily through his eyes, through him being a, himself, seeing himself as a deity. And it, it took ten plagues to wear this guy down till he, in fact, let the people go. But let us not be worn down. Um, we should open our eyes to the reality of this world and what it's all about um, easily and without much plague. So let's start going and see what what is um, happening with now the second plague, which we all know is the plague of frogs. Verse 26 of chapter 7 
Here we go. Vayomer Hashem al Moshe, Hashem says to, God says to Moses, Bo el Paro, go to Paro, Vamate elav, and say to him, Ko amar Hashem. So says God, Shalach etami v'yavduni, let my people go so they may serve me. Famous word said many, many times. But if you refuse to let them go, I will plague, I will strike. It's called Gvulcha, but Fardiim. I will strike your borders with frogs. Uh, and, and the, the Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and they will come to your houses. And they'll come into your bedrooms. And they'll come into your bed. And they will also be in your servant's home. They'll be amongst your people. They'll be in your ovens and they'll be in your kneading bowls. And the frogs will come up and be with you, your people, and all your servants. This is going to be massive, guys. So basically what God was saying, that the entire land will be swarming with frogs. And we're told that the biggest ones would attack Paro's palace, causing unbelievable damage. But they will be everywhere, in the people, croaking inside their bodies. It was absolutely hideous. Now, um, we always ask the question, why frogs? Just like we try to understand, why was the plague of blood, midda-connected meadow? you know, one trait against another, one deed against the other. Now, why frogs? Because one of the side effects of having these frogs swarming all over the place, being in every nook and cranny, being inside their bodies, inside their beds, inside their ovens, inside wherever they could, you just saw frogs. One of the side effects of frogs is you hear croaking. Now, it can be really wonderful when you're sitting in the in the Kruger and you hear one little frog coming up and giving its little croaking early in the morning. It's another story when you hear this croaking day in, day night, all day, not in stereo, but in probably stereo to the power of one million. It can absolutely drive you crazy. And one of the reasons that we are told that God went and created the frogs was because it was a midda-connected midda um, for the Egyptians who stifled and shut down and extinguished the sound of Torah. Because what used to happen is that um, when when Israelites would get up early in the morning to worship and study, the Egyptians would shut off that sound of prayer, that sound of Torah study, and they 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 they, they would force them to go to work. The Israelites, the Jewish people, would would cry out in terror because of the harsh labor, and so now as a punishment. Um, the Egyptians heard croaking and noise without stop. And so it really, really was fitting. Another reason we are told is that when the Jewish women tried to give birth, they couldn't scream out, right? Because if they did, 
the children would be taken away by the Egyptians. And now when one is in pain and one cannot even cry out, okay, because what is crying? Crying is a release of emotional energy. Your agony is even worse. Since the Egyptians didn't allow the Israelite woman to cry out, now they were being assaulted by the cries of the frogs. Quite fascinating. See, there was absolute forethought with everything that that um, that was being done to them. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. We are studying the Exodus and talking about the plague of frogs. So, Mida Kenegad Mida, it was a fit punishment for the Egyptians who tried to stifle the voice of the Jewish people, the voice of prayer, and even the voice of pain. Um, they now are inundated with these amphibian, hard, cold animals screeching in their ears. But it goes much more than that. And let's carry on in the verses to actually see what happens. We're now on chapter 8, verse 1. Hashem el Moshe. Hashem says to Moshe, Emor el Aharon, tell Aharon stretch your hand with the staff. Al You have to stretch your staff over the rivers, the canals, and the reservoirs. You will um, see. The frogs come up over the whole land of Egypt. Again, a point, uh, a point to note that um, here again, Aharon initiated the plague simply because um, this had to do with the Nile. And because the Nile had protected Moshe, um, he was forbidden. He had to remain in a state of gratitude. So, um, so Aaron did the, the, this, this, brought this plague. Now let's look into the Midrash. I'm going to read you a lot of Midrash. <laughs> You're going to see how terrible it was. Firstly, every drop of water in Egypt swarmed with frogs. Even if an Egyptian was drinking a cup of water, which was probably a relief for him because <laughs> what happened from, from, the, from the plague of blood, it suddenly became filled with frogs. When the Egyptians perspired, says the Midrash, every drop of sweat turned into a tiny frog. Now, very interestingly, if we go back to verse 2, which we haven't read, let's just look at it very quickly. Aharon stretched up his hand over the waters of Egypt. The frogs came up and they covered the whole land of Egypt. But, as always, and I emphasize this all the time, if we go look in the original you will see the word for frogs in verse 2, Sephardea, is in fact in the singular, not in the plural. If you look further back, you'll see all the time God saying Sephardeim, the frogs. Here it says, Bata'al Sephardea, that a frog came up. Rabbi Akiva teaches us, that what really happened was a single massive large frog hopped out of the Nile. The Egyptians got really nervous. They started beating it. Every time they hit it, it gave forth frogs. And the more the Egyptians tried to kill the frogs, the more they increased. Interesting, no? 
Rabbi Elazar bin Azaria said that there definitely was one frog because you see it in the singular, but this frog began croaking in such a loud voice, it attracted all the other frogs from all over the world. All right? And so what happened was is that the, the, it, this frog, according to Rabbi Elazar bin Azaria, was the guardian angel of frogs. And when he cried out, all the frogs assembled from all over the world. Irrespective whether it was one frog and that vomited up millions of frogs, or it was a frog that called all other frogs to come to, 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 to make war with Egypt, there was a lot of frogs. If an Egyptian drank a drop of water, it turned into a frog in his stomach. We're told that many of the wealthy had marble palaces, right? They sealed them shut to keep out the frogs. What would happen? The frogs would burrow under the ground, they would push up through the floor tiles, and they would enter into the houses at will. That's why if you go look back in the original, it says, Vata'al Hatsafaudea, the frogs came up. That is a hint telling us that they burrowed under the ground, and then they went up into the houses and into the floor. There is a very interesting um, idea, a further idea that is brought in the the Midrash that says that there are times in the course of history where you see um, a miracle happening. And what is that miracle? Where you could ask yourself the question if they were sitting in, in palaces of marble, of stone, whatever have you, and they locked their doors, they locked their windows, how is it that something like a frog, which is a bit mushy, it's a bit of a soft, frogs are a bit of a soft substance, how do they have the power to penetrate into the harder ones? Um, and one Midrash goes and says that they shouted out, we are messengers of Hashem who created the world. And when that was said, the marbles and the stones immediately parted and they allowed the frogs to penetrate them. Whether it was underground and coming through the tiles or through the windows, when else, just as a matter of interest, do we find that God performed this miracle of allowing a softer substance to pierce a harder one? Well, one example is when, when the Jews began to conquer the land of Israel. What happened then, the Canaanites were so nervous they hid in caves, and they barricaded those caves with rocks. What did God do? He sent hornets in front of the, the of B'nai Israel, in front of the Jews, which had the miraculous ability to penetrate the rocks and inject poison into the eyes of the Canaanim and expose them. So this is where, again, something softer um, overcame something much harder. A very famous one that you all know of, the battle against Goliath. What did David do? He flung a stone at him. But what was the stone? The stone was the softer substance because it hit the giant's iron helmet and it sank into his forehead. And that's how Goliath died. So here again, something soft hits something hard. And very famously, we know that when it came to the building of the temple in Jerusalem, um, no no vessel or, um, uh, what's the word, utensil of war was allowed to be used in the manufacture, manufacturing of anything to do with the temple. So the question was, well, how did they split diamonds and rocks if you cannot use something made of steel, which is obviously something that you can use for war? Well, there was a very, very famous little little worm called the Shamir 
and the Shamir would eat away and they would, it would split the rocks and the diamonds. And for anybody who's gone to Jerusalem and gone and walked by the Western Wall and you see how massive those rocks are, it's actually quite remarkable to think that a worm had actually cut those to size. So that's why it says the frogs went up, they went into the houses through the, through the floor, okay? And the Egyptians could not, could not shut the frogs out of their houses. If they sealed all the doors and the windows, they came through the floors. They came into the Egyptians' bedrooms. They jumped all over their beds. All right? It says that many Egyptians tried to then build bunkers underground to hide from the frogs, but no sooner had they gone into a safe space, they would see these frogs burrowing um, after them. Worse yet, we're told the frogs attacked and got into the Egyptian clothing. It attacked many of the men, castrating them, um, and that was, again, a a just punishment for the Egyptians who prevented the Israelites from having children. As we said before, if they drank water, they landed up with frogs. Those frogs remained alive and continued croaking in a loud voice. You can just imagine how terrible it was. In fact, the Midrash goes on to say, that many of the Egyptians just lay on the ground in absolute agony, driven half mad from confusion and tumult. And it made it, these frogs made so much noise that it was impossible to hold a conversation, even if you're standing next to another person. And we're also told that many pregnant Egyptian women died during this week of, tre- of, of terror. And as we saw in the beginning, if they tried to kill the frogs by beating them or stamping on them, whenever a frog was struck, it would burst and you'd get a dozen new frogs coming out from its belly. So it was, it was quite, 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 quite revolting. Now, last time, um, Pharaoh was part of the whole story with blood, but he wasn't singled out for special punishment. In this plague, he was. Now, how was he? Very interestingly, Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 15. This is in Abraham and Sarah's time. Um, When Abraham and Sarah came down to Egypt, Pharaoh took Sarah because she was very, very beautiful. And, And we are told that he had fallen in love with her. When he saw that he had to let her go without even touching her because a plague came upon her house, he didn't know what, what to do. He was completely besotted with Sarah. So what did he do? He created a lifelike mannequin that looked exactly like Sarah, and he placed that mannequin in his room, and he would often take her to bed with him. He would lie next to this mannequin, okay? And this landed up becoming a tradition for the pharaohs, and even though the earlier pharaoh had died, his successors made use of this beautiful mannequin. Now Pharaoh ran away to his bedroom, and there he was trying to lie and get some comfort with this mannequin, and he was being punished by having his bedroom and bed filled with with, with frogs. Now, how do how do we know that he had found solace before? Because if you look back in verse chap, uh, chapter seven, verse twenty-three, it says Pharaoh turned and went to his apartment, paying no attention even to this. This was talking about the plague of blood. But now he goes into his bedroom, okay, to lie with this mannequin, okay, trying to get him to forget about things, but he actually couldn't. They, they crawled all over him. They croaked so loudly he couldn't, he, he, he didn't know what to do with himself.
Another thing that happened, and I'm going to explain all of these things because when we get towards the end of the show, we're going to understand what does this have to do with us today. And you'll see that all of these are metaphors for our lives. When an Egyptian tried to bake some bread to eat, the frogs would jump into the oven. And so any food that the Egyptians prepared would be covered with frogs. Um, and what would happen is when the frogs actually jumped into this, this hot stove, um, what would happen is that they would explode into tiny little frogs. The frogs would bake into the bread and come alive when they were swallowed and they would begin to croak and kick in the Egyptian stomachs. Ooh. And obviously that caused them to, um, to, to, to die. Now, why was this a punishment, Midda, Because they never allowed the Jewish people to wash their hands before eating. The Jews obviously were not allowed to wash per se, and so they would have to eat with, with like filthy hands, with mud that was used to be made from the bricks. So now all the food that the Egyptians ate were defiled by frogs. Now, very, very interestingly, um, there's an entire discussion about the frogs that jumped into the ovens because we all know frogs are cold amphibians. They like the, mo the moist and the cold and they will definitely stay away from a roaring fire. So why did they? So the Midrash goes and tells us that um, the frogs had misirat nefesh, they had self-sacrifice. If they were commanded by God to make the lives of the Egyptians hell, um, and it meant that they went against their nature and had to jump into the ovens, so be it. That's what they did. And uh, that that is a huge lesson for us that we need to to embrace Torah with, with a passion, with a fire, and we need to jump in and we need to show our dedication to God. And in fact, later you will see that when the plague is brought to an end, all the, all the, the, the frogs around Egypt died, save of those that had, had taken the extra measure of jumping into the ovens. They were saved and they returned happily back to the river Nile. Right. One other very interesting thing over here is that if you look at for the word Sephardim, you will see that it appears 10 times um, while describing the plague of frogs, Sephardim meaning frogs, and this is to indicate that the plague of frogs in itself was as bad as all 10 plagues put together. Um, that, that, that's just how it did. What happened to the Jews? Well, where the Israelites lived, there wasn't a one frog to be found. Go into anywhere else in Egypt and you just had frogs upon frogs upon frogs. Right. So what does Paro do? His, his, uh, his, his general, uh, modus operandi is to call his, his magicians. The, the magicians did this with their own occult arts. They managed to make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So they were able to produce frogs by gaining control over demons. Okay. And then they assumed that that was the way that Moses did the same thing. There was just one caveat. The magicians couldn't stop the frogs. They could start the frogs. They couldn't stop the frogs. 
So after seven days, it's damning. It's terrible. It's unbearable. By Yikra Paro to Moshe Ba'aron, Paro calls to Moshe Ba'aron, by Yomer, and he says, Hatiro El Hashem, please pray to your God, the Yasser Hatsafadimi Meni, take away these frogs from me, Ume'ami, and from my people, the Ashacha, it's Tayam, the Yizbuchullah Hashem, I will let the people go, and they will sacrifice. So, um, here he does, it's the first time that he actually acquiesces that, that he can't control it, he can't stop it. He tells Moshe and Aaron to, to, to stop it. He, Paro himself was suffering unbelievably terribly. It was just, it was, it was hideous. Moshe Paro, so Moshe says to Paro, You tell me, tell me, okay? Tell me when you exactly want me to pray for you. Ula Abdecha and for your servants. Ula Amecha. Ula Amcha and for your, for your, for your nation. La Hachrita Tzafadimimcha to stop the, the, the fox from, from being with you. Umibatecha and from your houses. Rakbi Yoachisharena that only the frog should remain only in the Nile. You tell me, you, 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 you give me guidance. When do you want me to switch like basically this off? Vayomer and Paro replies, Lemachar, tomorrow. Vayomer, and so Moshe replies, Kidvarcha, according to you, according to your word, Lemanteda. So you should know, Kien Kashem Elokeinu. So you'll know that there's no one else but God, um, but God who is our God. That, what will happen then, the frogs will depart from you. From your houses, from your servants, from your, from your nation. Rakhbi, your Ochisharena. They will only remain in the Nile. Lots to talk about here. This is 101.9 Chai FM. Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. So when, when Pharaoh makes this request that a prayer should be said, he has it done in the plural, Hatiru, to indicate that more than one person should pray for him because he assumed that, wow, such a uh, a, a, a big plague as frogs will need at least the combined prayer of Moshe and Aaron to remove it. But Moshe replies, when I will pray for you to show, <laughs> I don't need anybody further to assist me. I, my prayers will be sufficient. So now, whenever Moshe prays for a plague to be removed, as you'll see in the, the, the plagues coming up, he only prayed that it should do no other damage. He did not ever pray that any damage should be repaired because the Egyptians deserved it as punishment for what they had done to the Israelites. And most plagues subsided one by one. The only exception here was this plague now, the plague of frogs. They could only be removed all at once. And therefore Moses died that all frogs should die at once so that they would stop further damage. Now, um, the only place where frogs would remain, okay, no, there would be no frogs left anywhere except in the Nile. And the reason why they left the frogs in the Nile was so that Moses could say to Pharaoh, you will now know that the Nile is not a god and the Nile cannot even protect itself. And how do you expect it to protect for, for, uh, protect anybody else? He's saying it by himself. He shouts out to God, um, about the matter of the frogs, that was there, but Pharaoh, 
okay? Vayas Hashem Kidvar Moshe, God does according to what Moshe asked, Vayamoto Hatzafedim Min Hapatim, and all the frogs died that were in the houses, Mina Chatserot, that were sitting in the courtyards, or Mina Sadot, and those who were sitting in the fields. But here's the side, uh, sidekick to it. Vayitzburu Otam HaChamarim, Chamarim, Tivash, Tivash Haaretz. The Egyptians gathered them in heaps and heaps. Some say they made, each one had four huge heaps of frogs, others said they made ten piles, but the land stank, stank, okay, because now they had this whole problem of decay. Again, a midah connected midah, a divine justice, because it says the Egyptians hated the Jews so much, they treated them like pariahs. They, they really, that's what they made them feel like. And if Egyptian women would see even the most beautiful, beautiful Jewish woman, they would turn up their nose like a stinking corpse. So now they are suffering the smell. There was one good thing that came out of the plague of, of frogs, and that was that there was, until that point in time, the Egyptians were having a dispute with the Ethiopians as to exactly the exact border between which where the two lands lay. The border now, because inside the borders of Egypt there were frogs, outside the borders of Egypt there were no frogs. The border was now clearly demarcated, and any place where the frogs came was clearly Egyptian territory, and the rest belonged to Ethiopia. And that's why if you go back to, 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 to verse 27 that we read in the beginning, it says here, I will plague all your borders with frogs. So <laughs> that, that, that allowed that dispute to be resolved, and for many years there was peace between Egypt and Ethiopia. Finally, we're going to land up with what we know best. By Ya Paroki Haita Harubacha, Paro saw now that there was a respite, Behachbed et Libo, he hardened his heart, Veloshama Lehem, and he didn't listen to them, Kashedi Bar Hashem, as God has had said. So once again, he turned himself into a very stubborn human being. Okay, so you can just imagine how noisy, how revolting, how smelly, how, ooh, I mean, if I see one frog, I run a mile. Can you imagine just having frogs everywhere, all over you? And as a, the little kindergarten children sing, frogs, yeah, frogs there. Frogs were jumping everywhere. Um, and uh, I, like I, I, as I was learning this, I was thinking about those plastic <laughs> little frogs that we buy for um, our Santa table. They were, they're so benign compared to what really, really happened in Egypt. Last week we spoke about the fact that um, we have to see ourselves as coming out of Egypt, out of our limitations, our constraints, um, every day of our lives. And the the plagues were not only there to 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 do a meta connected meta, a um, a punishment, a fit punishment for every deed that the Egyptians had done, but on a psychological, spiritual, emotional level, they're there to teach people how to move out of their stuckness. Now, one one idea that comes out from frogs is that frog has to do with the concept of yesod. And yesod um, is the foundation, and yesod, the foundation of life, is that of bonding. We know and understand today very, very well how important it is to bond with our spouses, to bond with our children. We see the psychological um, uh, problems that come up 
where there is not healthy bonding, where there is not healthy connection of one human being to another. And it similarly can be drawn that there needs to be a bond between creature and creator, between man and between God. Now, we know that frogs, by definition, um, are cold-blooded. They're amphibious creatures, and they only hatch in cold climates. We know also that female frogs will only go deposit their eggs into water, and that's where they will hatch, into tadpoles. We know that land-dwelling frogs will deposit their eggs in cold and moist holes, right? And so frogs on a metaphorical level represent an emotional state of apathy, of detachment, and of coldness. So basically, the second plague is coming to teach us that um, Egypt was a place of cold and dispassionate intimacy, So when we live in such a space, in our psychological Egypt, right, and we live with cold intimacy, we don't have the ability to attach, we don't have to have the ability to connect, then we're in a state of Egypt, we're in a state of slavery, we are in a state of bondage. A person needs to work on themselves to experience genuine emotional intimacy with their spouse, with a child, with a friend, and with God. And we need not be that frog-like personality where we are completely indifferent. Where's that cold intimacy? You know, uh, Rabbi Jacobson loves saying this, uh, this little joke. He says, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And the person who's asked of that says, I don't know and I don't care. We need to know and we need to care. And that's what the plague of frogs is coming to teach us. This is 101.9 Chai FM. Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Well, we've wrapped up the the plague of frogs. I just would like to answer a question that has come in from Joseph, um, who asks a a different question, but a question nevertheless. We don't we don't leave questions unanswered. The question is, are we going to fit into Israel on resurrection and judgment day? Well, um, and, and then it ends up with all of us. Well, <laughs> that's a very good question, and, and we know that many people, particularly Jews, are very uh, insistent on being buried in the Mount of Olives because it says on Resurrection Day, it is going to look like the Tachanam Kazit, it's going to look like a railway station. There's going to be a lot happening. And then um, we're told as well that, 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 that um, people who have died out of the land of Israel will be rolling. Um, through subterranean tunnels all the way to Israel. So it is going to be a very action-packed place. What I can tell you is the following. Number one, um, are we going to fit into Israel? Well, anything is possible with God. We know that when it came to the temple, um, it was so squashy that people stood you know, erect and they couldn't move. But when it came for them to bow, the place miraculously expanded and everybody was allowed and given space to bow down. But more than that, we are also taught that when Mashiach comes, um, Jerusalem will expand to the entire um, land of Israel, meaning the whole land of Israel will be called Jerusalem, and the rest of the world will be called the land of Israel. So I'm sure there'll be plenty of space, 
And we need not worry because either way, God will make a plan. Thank you, Joseph, for asking that question and hope I gave you some enlightenment there. And on that note, have an enlightening week ahead. Um, make it your business this week to go out and try practice um, warm intimacy, connection, real connection. Not with our phones, not with our, uh, with, with our devices, not with, with, with black boxes in front of us, but let's be emotionally warm and intimate one with the other and let's cultivate that intimacy with God because without it, we'll just be a frog. Have a wonderful week ahead. This is 101.9 High FM.